you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hey everybody, it's John Raby, the host of Off Ramp. Welcome back. Uh, sorry for the hiatus last week. Things just got out of hand. But now from LAist Studios, here's a brand new Off Ramp. Ripped from the pages of history. We're going to go back to 2014 and a piece produced by Chris Greenspan, who is now the host of SGV Weekly, a great podcast. But back then, uh, he was he was producing for Off Ramp and uh, making pieces like the one you're going to hear about a man you've never heard of. Although if you were alive in Los Angeles in the 20s and 30s, he might have been a household name. His name was Jim Tully. He was known as a pioneering novelist, Charlie Chaplin's wingman and publicist, and he punched a movie star in the face at the Brown Derby. He was a top contributor to Vanity Fair and H.L. Mencken's American Mercury, but by the late 1940s, he was forgotten. So here is the story of Jim Tully, as told in 2014 by Chris Greenspan. That first picture of Jim Tully I shall always remember His head was tilted to one side, and as he raised it, it seemed to me that it was literally on fire. His hair is a tangled, wiry mop of flaming red curls, and like most red hair, it creates a strange, almost startling impression of youth. I had the feeling that I was seeing him as he looked years ago when he sat by the high trestle spanning the St. Mary's River in Ohio and listen to a one-eyed hobo gabble heroically about his wanderings and the far countries of the world. Sarah Hart, The American Mercury, 1928. In 1992, a man walked into Paul Bauer's bookstore in Kent, Ohio, and asked Bauer about a boxing novel called The Bruiser. He mentioned that the author was Jim Tully, and I did not know the book. But he did point out that the writer was known as the father of hard-boiled fiction. So I was really kind of shocked I'd never heard of the guy. And the uh, the customer then mentioned that uh, he had begun writing in Kent, at which point I was really embarrassed never to have even heard of him. And he began writing in the town that I called home. Bauer checked a reference book and only found one brief entry on Tully. So he called his friend Mark DeWidziak, a columnist at the Akron Beacon Journal. Dwidziak found one of Tully's books in another bookstore for $2.50. And it's fair to say that he wrote like a jackhammer. Uh, he had very staccato style, very punchy sentences. A man served a year in jail for stealing a horse. When released, he was threatened with death if he repeated the offense. Arrested for stealing another horse, he was found hanging from a limb next morning, his head tilted sideways, arms and legs stiff. A placard was fastened to the bosom of his shirt. We gave him a chance to live, but he committed suicide. Jim Tully. But he also wrote with a certain amount of lyricism. He wrote with the Irish poet side of his nature as well. It was almost like he wrote like he had boxed in the boxing ring. But then he found something even more intriguing in his own newspaper's archives. So when I got back to the Akron Beacon Journal, where I worked at the time, I went back to the area they call the morgue, which is where you store dead copy. Uh, It's all your files, all your pictures. And I looked through the T's, see if we had a file on Jim Tully. And sure enough, we did. And on the envelope, it said, former Beacon Journal reporter. On a hunch and over a beer, 
Bauer and Dwidziak decided to write Jim Tully's biography. It was an act of faith. We had no idea that we would find enough to support the writing of a full-scale biography. There was very little biographical material available on Tully, but not enough to support a biography by any means. So I was simply going through years and years of microfilm, and one of the librarians had noticed me doing it and was sort of curious what I was up to. And he said, well, let me do some checking. And he had found Tully's personal papers, more than 100 boxes stashed at the UCLA Library Special Collections. And once we knew the existence of those papers, we immediately began to figure out how we were going to get to Los Angeles and work on that. And that really was the treasure trove. Jim Tully was born in 1886 in St. Mary's, Ohio, the second youngest of six children. His father was a ditch digger whose family came from Ireland to escape the potato famine of 1845. His mother died when he was six years old. Well, his father had a drinking problem and would drift from job to job, and it was decided it was really not suitable to care for these motherless children. So Jim and his brothers were sent to the Catholic orphanage in Cincinnati, and he spent the next six years of his life there. He considered it something of a prison, but uh, to be fair, he also acknowledges that the seeds of his becoming a writer were given to him at that orphanage. When he aged out of the orphanage at 12, his father wouldn't take him back in, and he was placed in the custody of a sadistic farmer. At 13, Tully ran away and moved back in with his sister in his hometown. He took a job in a chain factory and spent his paydays in saloons where hobos amazed them with stories of jumping trains. At 14 years old, Tully left home for good and became what was known as a road kid. Road kid is sort of a junior hobo. They were tougher. Uh, Jack Dempsey had been a road kid. This was an incredibly dangerous, rough existence. I lived in many a brothel where the dregs of life found shelter. I fraternized with human wrecks whose hands shook as if with palsy, with degenerates and perverts, greasy and lousy, with dope fiends who would shoot needles of water into their arms to relieve the wild aching. UCLA archivist Elisa Monheim picks up the tale. The story, so as it goes, is that he was largely illiterate, if not entirely illiterate, at the point that he ran away and started living life on the road. But one of the few things that you can do in that situation, places you can hang out to get out of the heat or the cold, is to go to libraries. So he hung out in libraries in all the towns that he was in and pretty much just taught himself how to read based entirely on what he could pick up in libraries. Books were more to me than food. My very life. My rope to the shore and the surging waters. When he was 20 years old, Tully decided it was time to get off the road. To make money, he joined the Ohio boxing circuit. He was an untrained boxer to be sure, but he was fearless. He was willing to take punches, to take punishment, all to get inside and score hits. Tully's first opponent was Chicago Jack Tierney. I staggered from an overhand right and rattled the teeth in Tierney's jaw to turn. I tried to get under the eaves. Tierney was wise. His rigid arm met my attack. Our gloves were now blood and water soaked. My kidneys ached with pain. Tully had dozens of career fights. According to Bauer, he had seen men blinded in the ring, 
He had seen men die in the ring, and he realized this wasn't a career he was going to carry into middle age. He moved to Los Angeles and started writing. Poetry for newspapers, his first book, articles about hoboing and boxing, and his ghostwriter, Confession of a Japanese Geisha Girl. He wasn't making much money, but simply being published gained him recognition in L.A. Well, when he gets to L.A., he gravitates towards Hollywood Boulevard. There's a group of people who used to hang around Hollywood Boulevard, dreamers, if you will, people who have sort of drifted into town, and they're all going to make it. Tom Mix, the cowboy star. One of Tully's best friends is Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces, the phantom of the opera, the hunchback of Notre Dame. Eric von Stroheim, the director. And then there was MGM producer Paul Byrne. Paul Byrne steps in, who is one of Tully's best friends, and says, come to this party. There's somebody there you should meet. The person that they want Tully to meet is the reigning comedic star of the silver screen, Charlie Chaplin. And Chaplin offers Tully a job. In 1923, Charlie Chaplin made Jim Tully his all-purpose PR writer. Chaplin, the little tramp, was fascinated by Tully. They both came from poverty. They both knew tragedy regarding their mothers. Tully's mother died when he was six. Chaplin's mother was sent to an insane asylum. And as fascinated as they were, they always seemed to be circling each other warily and observing each other. Desperate with hunger, and here it was Thanksgiving Day. Nevertheless, there was something to be thankful for. Tully felt underpaid, didn't want a brown-nosed Chaplin, and especially didn't enjoy having to play Chaplin's wingman on all-night benders. But the job gave Tully the chance to write his second novel. Beggars of Life is published while he is with Chaplin, and he needed the right push to get away. The reviews are excellent, and he no longer had the economic reason to stay at Chaplin's. The mid-twenties were good to Tully. Beggars of Life was made into a movie, he married his second wife, Marna, and Vanity Fair asked him to write a series of movie star profiles. At the time, nearly all press on Hollywood came from the studios, but Tully was a free agent. So he was known as the man Hollywood most loved to hate because he was one of the first ever reporters to really cover Hollywood as a beat. So he really did not care who he pissed off in the slightest. And it wasn't that he manufactured stories. He just was not interested in sugarcoating anything at all. Some of them are very flattering pieces. Others, uh, not very much. One in particular was uh, a piece he wrote about John Gilbert, which was so harsh that reportedly when Gilbert read it, uh, he threw up. Gilbert was a leading man in the silent era, but faded when the talkies came in. Tully's piece called Gilbert a cowardly ham and a poor woman's Rudolph Valentino. In 1930, they had it out at the Brown Derby. And at that moment, something in John Gilbert snaps. He goes for Jim Tully. Tully is up, and he is in a boxer's stance. Gilbert comes at him, and he throws two wild punches, misses with both. Tully, a trained boxer, steps into the gap and snaps a right uppercut, knocks him cold with one punch. He was creating such a breeze that I was afraid he was going to give himself a cold, so I put him to sleep for his own protection. 
Newspaper cartoons of John Gilbert with little X's over his eyes made front pages nationwide. What happened next was classic Hollywood. This is great publicity. And the one person who recognized it as great publicity was John Gilbert's boss, Louis B. Mayer, one of the M's in MGM. To capitalize on that, one of the movie studios actually cast Jim Tully as his like sidekick in a movie. Tully and Gilbert became friends that year on the set of Way for a Sailor, an early talkie, which contains the only known audio and video of Jim Tully. Sure, and if he's got a gal with it, we'll break her up for it. Ain't it marvelous how many women he almost gets? The 30s were bad for Tully. He lost one of his main sources of income when his friend H.L. Mencken resigned as editor of the American Mercury. His son Alton was in and out of jail, and Tully's second marriage ended in divorce. His novel Ladies in the Parlor was widely condemned and banned for its frank depiction of prostitution. You must never be self-conscious or ashamed of yourself in the presence of men. You have as much right to sell your body as the priest has to sell a mass. She smiled, her wide gold false teeth showing. In 1936, he published his acclaimed boxing novel, The Bruiser, the book that started Bauer and Dewidziak on their quest. The Bruiser was a huge success as a paperback in the 1950s. But as a hardcover in the 30s, sales were microscopic. Tully's health went down the drain. A heart attack, arthritis, more heart problems... After all of the hard years that he spent on the road and in the boxing ring, that toll really starts to take effect in these last few years. He doesn't really have the energy to sit down at the typewriter. There really was not much going on in publishing the way it had been in the years before the war. So he was up against that as well. The world Tully wrote about was destroyed by World War II. He had lost two of his homes, and the writing deals were gone. On June 22, 1947, Jim Tully's heart failed. He was 61 years old, and he's buried here at Glendale's Forest Lawn Cemetery on the Whispering Pine Slope, right between the fountain and just a few rows away, the grave belonging to John Gilbert. Another indignity in death? His tombstone incorrectly says he was born in 1891 instead of 1886, shortening his life by five whole years. We know a small fraction of the writers who were leading authors of the 20s and 30s. We know the Fitzgeralds, we know the Hemingways, we know the Steinbecks. But the vast majority of writers who were acclaimed and celebrated from those decades are forgotten today. He was shining a light on an America that few people saw, certainly very few people experienced it the way that Jim Tully did. He's sort of the missing link between Jack London and Jack Kerouac, these riders of the road. Like Mark Twain, Bauer and Dwidziak say, Jim Tully didn't just live behind the typewriter. He had a great big American life. For Off Ramp, I'm Chris Greenspawn. Chris Greenspawn filed that story for Off Ramp back in 2014. And you need to check out Chris's current podcast. It's called SGV Weekly. It focuses on the, you guessed it, the San Gabriel Valley. It's hyper-local, and it's 
always a great listen. He's telling stories nobody else is. And again, I, I highly recommend it wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's Off-Ramp from LAS Studios. I'm John Raby, and I'll catch you next time on The Off-Ramp. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.